prayer. Father God, we praise you that you are that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful and they have been revealed to us both through the natural world and through the scriptures. We thank you that you have written our days in your book and that they were formed specifically for us even before we were created. Father, help us to be like the psalmist David when he sang, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. And Father, we thank you for the righteousness that has been given to us, your children, through Jesus Christ. Let us never move beyond the wonder of your grace shown to us in your Son. We pray, just as David Clarkson, the Puritan pastor, prayed, Lord, I would be the most miserable person in the world if my hopes were only in this life. Why? Because I am hopeless without Christ's righteousness. Lord, however you deal with me in the outward things, whatever you take from me, whatever you deny me, do not deny me Christ. Father, we praise you for the glorious inheritance that is ours through Jesus, the one who makes our adoption possible. And this morning, God, we confess our sin of apathy toward you. Far too many of us have turned away from our first love. We confess that we have often not fulfilled our chief end to glorify you and to enjoy you forever. Our lives have been, become filled with the cares of this world. So we pray that you would create in us a clean heart and renew a right spirit in each of us. We ask that you take away our old hearts and that you would restore the joy of our salvation. Father, we pray that you would cause us to hunger and thirst after your righteousness. And as we move closer to this national election, Lord, the ugliness and vitriol that often accompanies an election is beginning to pile up. There are far too many crude and callous things that are being said, not only by the candidates themselves, but also by their supporters. And we ask that no matter what the outcome of the election, that your people would trust you, knowing that you are sovereign. You control the heart of the king and turn it in whichever way you choose. Let your people, let us rest in that truth, in the truth that no matter how dark the world around us seems, Jesus Christ is alive and reigning on his throne. Jesus promised that the gates of hell would not prevail against his church. Let us live our lives in light of that. And Father, we, we thank you for our pastors. We thank you for Jeremy and for David, for Patrick and for Brian. And even more, Father, we thank you for their families who so often make sacrifices so that our pastors can lead our church in ways that will bring glory to you. I thank you for my own family, for Tina and for our children. And we thank you for the way that each of these families contributes to Harvest Point, And we thank you for bringing them to us. Now, Father, we pray now that you would help our church to continue to grow in unity. We thank you for the increase in our attendance cap, and we thank you for the improved live streaming service for those who are worshiping at home. And to that end, Lord, we pray that this virus would come to an end quickly, that the treatment would become safely and readily available, and that the number of cases here in Jefferson and the surrounding areas would begin to subside. We thank you for all that you have done for us and will do for us. 
Thank you for sending Jesus to die on the cross so that we could be ransomed back to you. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who convicts us of sin and who guides us as we seek to live holy lives. And Father, we thank you for the scriptures that shape us and conform us in the image of Jesus. Open our hearts and our minds in preparations for the truth that the truths that have been shared through the singing and will be shared now through the preaching. We love you and we ask all these things in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. We'll go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Paul's letter to the Ephesians. As you do, it is good to be back with you this morning. Um, everyone now healthy in the Todd household. Um, not the time of season to um, or cultural climate to get a cold and have asthma, um, but it is there nonetheless. Um, uh, last week was a pre-planned time away, uh, but I want to thank uh, David and Jonathan for filling in. Um, so thankful for these brothers and um, using their gifting in, in the life of, of our church family. I um, also wanted to uh, thank all of you who, who reached out and checked on us um, Definitely uh, means a lot um, to know the church family is caring for and praying for you uh, while you're away. And before we get started, I have one announcement to make. Um, November 3rd, yes, it's election day, um, but there's something way more encouraging and way more edifying that is taking place that day. Um, I'll, I'll be teaching a six-week class starting on November 3rd um, called God's Big Picture. We're going to be looking at the storyline of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, um, kind of seeing how the, the overarching story of the Bible comes together, and we're going to do it in six weeks, and we're going to, we're going to do it over Zoom. I've got to be very careful with that because I say I'm having a Zoom class. I don't mean like we're going to get on bicycles and like go for it um, in that moment. Um, that would be a little awkward. Uh, but we're going to, to get together on Zoom and uh, have a six-week class um, and so put the kids to bed and join us. If kids aren't going to go to bed, just hit mute and join us. Um, and we would love to have you be a part of that class. Uh, just be sure to register ASAP, um, um, whether it's um, on our Facebook page, I think is the link, or you can find the link in the email that goes out every uh, Wednesday. If you don't get either of those, please let us know and we'll get you more information and kind of go from there. But now for a moment of parental honesty. Uh, there are days as a parent when you just feel like a complete failure, right? I mean, there are days there's just like there's nothing seems to stick. There nothing seems to click. Uh, it appears like everything goes in one ear and out the other. Uh, and you're thinking, well, I've got to be a failure at something. Uh, hey, I've discovered what it is in this moment. And well, there you go, but then, then you sit down for dinner, and maybe it's one of those days, it's even a miracle that you've survived to, to reach dinner, um, and so you, you know you need to pray, and you're thinking, okay, we're going to pray, it's probably going to be one of those generic kind of, Lord, thank you for this food, let's just continue moving on to bedtime type of prayers, and then your child volunteers to pray, and you're thinking, well, after today... This should be good. And you're thinking, this might just be the nail in the coffin for the day. 
But you let him or her proceed to, to pray, and as he prays, you and your spouse then look up at one another. Yes, in the midst of the prayer, you make eye contact, and you do so with an overwhelming sense of conviction. Why? Because of the heartfelt beauty of the prayer you hear coming out of your child's mouth. And just in that moment when you had come to the dinner table thinking, man, I don't know if things could get much worse than they are right now, And you're like, and you go and you totally redeem yourself. (laughs) Like in that moment, and it's like, yes. And for a moment, you're not as bad of a parent as you think you are. Three minutes later, life gets back to normal. But what Leslie and I have found is that our prayers around the dinner table have proven to be some of our sweetest moments of discipleship best moments of of teaching. For example, maybe there's been a difficult day. Whether you're young or whether you're old, we, we have difficult days. And whether you're a child or an adult, how are we tempted to pray on those difficult days? You've come to the end of it. It's been really rough. You're just glad it's over. What are you praying at the dinner table? Lord, just give me a better day tomorrow. Lord, just let this day in, let tomorrow come, let us have a better day. Is there anything wrong with that prayer? There's nothing wrong with praying for a better day, right? There's definitely nothing wrong with the heart behind that prayer. We want a better day. But the question needs to be asked, what will it take biblically to make tomorrow a better day? Could it be more self-control? Maybe a, a practice of patience? practice of kindness, a little bit more grace extended to those around us. Yeah, it could be any number of things. So so we attempt to to use these moments when it's like, I just want to have a better day, to say, okay, maybe we need to be praying, Lord, help me practice self-control better tomorrow. Lord, help me to have more patience with those around us. We apply the fruits of the Spirit in our our life. And my question for, for you this morning what, what should occupy the content of our prayers? Like, how can we learn to pray more biblically faithful prayers? Well, the simple answer there is to pray the Bible. Countless examples. I love to just walk through the Psalms and, and use those to guide my prayers, especially when I don't know what to pray, to let the Psalms guide my prayers. There's countless models of prayers throughout the Bible, including what we have in our text here today. Paul providing us the content of how he's been praying for the Ephesians, which in turn gives us a great model for how we are to pray for for one another. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, as we close out chapter 1 of Ephesians. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation and the knowledge of him, from the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might 
that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So this is how Paul has been praying for the saints who are in Ephesus. The word saint, as we have looked at previously, uh, is, is referring to the church, an assembly of people, of believing people, comprised of people from all different walks of life. So different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnic backgrounds, even different religious backgrounds. That is, some grew up Jewish, but most did not. Most actually having uh, uh, there in Ephesus a, a very strong pagan, magic, occult type of influence and background. The culture itself that they're living in is hostile to the, to the gospel. The government is no friend of the church. And where does Paul find himself? Well, Paul finds himself in prison in Rome for preaching the gospel. But what's he doing? While he's in Rome... In prison, what's he doing? He, he's, yes, he's writing these letters, but he's also praying for the church that is in Ephesus. He's praying for these saints. And, and what I want to do today isn't just review what we've looked at in previous weeks. We've gone into great detail in previous weeks on these verses. But rather, what I want to do today is use Paul's prayer as a model to tell you how I've been praying for you. How I've been praying for us as, as a church family. So seven things that I've been praying for us as a church. Number one, I'm praying for our faith to be proven genuine in suffering. Praying for our faith to be proven genuine in suffering. The context of this letter is that Paul is in prison. He's, by nature, there suffering. Yet where is his delight it's in his standing in, in Christ. His mood, his outlook, not determined by his circumstances. Not determined by his, his momentary affliction, which seems impossible in so many ways, right? To not let that deter you. But it's a needed, needed reminder of the delight that comes and is possible with genuine faith. We as Christians are, are born again with the ability to delight in Christ. We'll admit our, our present circumstances are not ideal. They're not what any of us would pick or choose or desire. Now, it's not as bad as Paul, but definitely not the most desirable. But they should in no way steal our ability to delight. Nothing that is going on right now should steal our ability to delight. Paul himself is delighting. Oh, and he's delighting in what he's hearing taking place in the Ephesians' continued faith in the Lord. So my question, my question is, what is it that makes this delighting possible? And I believe it starts with a biblical understanding of faith. Faith that is proven genuine through suffering. See, biblical faith is a combination of three things. It's a combination of knowing, it's a combination of believing, and it's a combination of trusting. So knowing, believing, and trusting. 
believing the information to be true. One, or combination of having knowing specific information, right? And then believing that specific information to be true. And then trusting that information to live your life by. Think of it like military intel, if you will. I recently finished reading a book called Above and Beyond about the Cuban Missile Crisis. If you're looking for a, a good history book to read, I recommend it. Gary Vanderhaven is your source for all good books when it comes to history. Uh, and I thank him for um, leading me in this direction. But one thing uh, that stands out with this book, the kind of theme of this book with the Cuban Missile Crisis, is the U.S. is sending U-2 spy planes to fly 13 miles over Cuba and above Cuba to, to gather, secretly gather intel. Essentially, they're wanting to know, are the Soviets arming the island with nuclear weapons or not? They have to have the intel. They have to have the information. But it wasn't enough just to have the intel. It wasn't just enough to have the picture. They had to believe that it was credible. Was it revealing what they thought it revealed? And then they had to trust that it revealed enough to make life-altering decisions by. Same is true with the Christian faith. Absolutely essential to have the information that comprises the gospel. Have to know that there is a holy God eternally existent, three persons, that we have sinned against him, deserve his just judgment. And in an act of his great love and his amazing grace, he sent his one and only son to live the life that we were supposed to live, to die the death that we deserve to die. And in rising from the dead, give hope, eternal hope, to everyone who believes. That's the information but if that information is going to be any good to us, what do we have to do? We have to believe it. We have to believe that it's true. And then here's the question. How do we know that we believe it's true? Is it just nodding our head affirming, yes, I believe those things to be true? Like, how do we know that we believe the gospel to be true? Well, we trust it enough to make life-altering decisions by. We trust Jesus literally, as our only hope in life and in death. And I believe this right here, friends, is the disconnect for a lot of professing Christians. A disassociation with belief and action. A disassociation with belief and delight. See, friends, trusting Christ as our only hope in life and in death is more than a catchy catechism line. It's literally trusting Jesus and nothing or no one else as our only hope in life and in death, regardless of our circumstances. So no matter who wins this election, no matter how bad the pandemic is or the effects may be or the cultural climate may be, those things are not enough to change our hope the basis of our hope. They in no way change our ability to delight. And this is my ongoing prayer for us as a church, that our faith will be proven genuine, that it will persevere through suffering. That regardless of what this world throws at us, we will continue to hope and delight in Christ. That our light will actually shine brighter 
in the midst of the trial. Whether we're in conversation or somebody's looking at our Facebook post, that they will see our delight in Christ above everything and everything and everything else. Who are we hoping in in this season? Two, I'm praying for our love for one another to be sacrificial. Now, there are several words for, the, for, for love in the Greek language, each one with its own distinct meaning. And the word Paul chooses to use here to describe the Ephesians' love towards all the saints is the word agape. What does agape mean? Agape love is a love that seeks the good of another, no matter how much it may cost one personally. It's a sacrificial love. And it's the word that is usually described to, use, to describe Christ's love for the church. Christ's love for his bride. A sacrificial love. And this, this type of love, this love is what Paul is hearing about coming from the church in Ephesus to one another. A sacrificial love that, that is directed towards all the saints to, to their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Brothers and sisters who, again, come from radically different backgrounds. Different, yes, socioeconomic backgrounds. Different ethnic backgrounds. Even may differ and think politically when it comes to their backgrounds. But sacrificial love exists nonetheless because of the unity that they share in Christ. This is how their faith is proven genuine. Because of the sacrificial love that they showed one to another. This is what Paul hears. He's hearing of their faith and he's hearing of their love. He, he doesn't hear of them complaining of, about the rules of Rome. Or the bemoaning of the trials of a pagan culture. He hears of light shining forth in the darkness. He hears of sacrificial faith-filled love. For one another. That's what I'm praying for us as well. And I can't help but wonder. I can't help but wonder what, what agape love looks like for us in our current circumstance. How do we as a church practice agape love towards one another in these trying times, even if and when we think radically different about things? Now, this may sound overly simple. But during the first week of school, my, my son learned an acronym demonstrating uh, sacrificial love uh, using the word joy. Joy. You may have heard it. It stuck with him. It stuck with our family. His, faith, his teacher teaching them that joy stands for, think of Jesus, others, yourself. In that order, Jesus, others, yourself. Teacher would come and ask him, is that joy or is that yaj? What's yaj, you ask? It's joy backwards. Yourself, others, Jesus. And so they meet in class and they're doing an action, and she'll just come in and simply ask them, is that joy or is that yaj? How are you thinking? So we, we've adopted that in our home as well. I've been asked that numerous times. Daddy, is that joy or is that yash? I think we can all apply that within our homes. 
and we can apply that in an extended family of our church family as well. Are we looking around and thinking we're going to look for joy-filled lives or yaj-filled lives? I'm praying that we will be a joy-filled people, known for our agape love towards one another. Number three, I'm praying with a heart of thanksgiving for you. See, Paul hears of the Ephesians' faith and love, and what's he do? He gives God thanks. Verse 16, I do not cease to give thanks for you. He's thankful for the grace of God working in their lives, of calling them from the darkness to, to the light, of predestining them for adoption, giving them faith, making their love visible. And here's the question. What is he, why does he thank the Lord for these things? Seems like a very simple question, right? But, but not an unimportant question. Why does he thank the Lord? Because there's no one else to thank. He's thanking the Lord because there's no one else to thank. Every ounce of their salvation, of their faith and love comes from the Lord. Nothing from themselves. That's why I find it ironic and kind of weird when somebody says, like, here's somebody coming to faith in the Lord, and they say, hey, congratulations. Like, we did something to earn it. (laughs) Like, we've done nothing to earn it. No, that moment of hearing of somebody's faith in the Lord isn't a moment of congratulations, of like, well done. It's a moment of praise. Thank God for what he has done and continues to do. Friends, to hear of one's faith and continue faith in the Lord is no small thing, as it is an ongoing testimony of God's sovereign grace being displayed in their life. And church family, I am, I am so deeply thankful for the evidences of grace I see within this church. Do we have room to grow? Absolutely. We all have room to grow. Can we find ourselves consumed by the things that frustrate us? Yes. We can easily find ourselves consumed by the things that frustrate But oh, what a testimony of God's grace that so many within this body who have been given ample reasons, earthly reasons, to walk away from the faith, continue to walk in the faith. It's reason to give God thanks. Such a testimony of God's grace that is working in you. The the very fact that we continue to exist as an identifiable body as a church is reason to give God thanks. Like we're not held together by a building. We're we're not held together by a location or, or years of tradition. What are we held together by? I believe it is a common faith in the Lord and a love for one another. Both things that I I pray will continue to grow even more in the years ahead, an ever-increasing faith and an ever-increasing love. May these present trials not extinguish the fire that is burning within us, but only fan those flames hotter and brighter in this season. It's so easy right now to, to point at things that discourage us. Oh, church, there's so many things to be encouraged by as well. So many things to give God thanks for. So church, I, I give God thanks for you in my prayers. 
I am so thankful to be one of your pastors. Number four, I'm praying you will have 2020 biblical vision. Remember the Ephesians have their own cultural, cultural dilemmas to traverse. So what does Paul pray? That they will have their eyes of their hearts enlightened. That they will see and think biblically within the world that they're living in. But notice what he's not praying for. He's not praying for anything that would exalt experience or emotion or feelings. Rather, he's praying for knowledge and understanding that leads to biblical vision. See, so much of modern Christianity is built around the idea of experience, built around the idea of feelings, built around the idea of excitement and emotion. Churches even encouraging people to participate and to enjoy their Sunday morning experience. There's no such language in the Bible. Any biblical experience we see in Scripture is rooted in intimate knowledge and understanding of God and His Word. The word Paul uses here for knowledge, even finding its Hebrew counterpart in Genesis chapter 4 with Adam knowing Eve. Intimate knowledge leading to understanding. Why? Because relying on spiritual experience to get you through life's trials is the equivalent of relying on a one-night stand to be the foundation of a healthy marriage. And what that is, what that experience is, is emotion that is void of truth. Yes, it's enticing. Yes, it's alluring. But it is not life-giving. Ah, but it's easy. Yet intimate knowledge and understanding takes time. Want easy? It's what the world's going to tempt you with. Want truth, want knowledge, want understanding, want biblical intimacy? It's going to take time. Want to grow in biblical knowledge and understanding? It's not going to happen overnight. It takes a lifetime. Just like a healthy marriage, every passing year growing richer than the one before. But it's not easy. It takes work takes faithful commitment, setting aside intentional time to spend in God's word, studying daily, learning, praying, slowly building year after year after year. So you can't have 2020 biblical vision if you're not spending intentional time growing in knowledge and understanding. So I pray that the Lord will only increase our desire to know him more through his word in the days ahead. And as a result, see him biblically in, in a dark and confusing world. Number five, I pray we will know heaven is our home. Here's what I mean by that. Paul's unceasing prayer for the Ephesians is that they may know what is the hope to which he has called them. And that they will know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Both of these have eternity in mind. Paul's prayer for them, my prayer for you, is that you'll live life now with heaven in view. Why? Because if we are in Christ, that's where our eternal citizenship lies. Our passport 
is not sealed with, with a flag. Our, our passport is sealed with the blood of Christ. Live, live with heaven in view and the, the borders that separate us and divide us and the trials of this world that overwhelm us are seen through a whole new lens. So I pray you, you will, that we will have the hope that Paul speaks of here, which as we've talked about before, isn't a wish upon a star kind of hope. I just hope things kind of work out okay. No, biblically, hope is a word that is rooted in certainty. Not maybe, but absolutely. It's a hope rooted in the promises of God. It's the hope of, of knowing that he has chosen us. He has adopted us. He has sealed us. And because Christ has risen from the dead, so will everyone who believes in him. Hope in knowing whatever this life brings. Heaven is our home. That's how Paul is able to write this letter from the confines of, of prison with such joy. His hope in Christ outshining the darkness of his circumstances. But take your eyes off of Jesus and what becomes the focus? You think about that for a moment. Take your eyes off of Jesus and what becomes our focus? Everything else. Everything else around us. Oh, church, as we sang at the start of our service, the song, Christ Our Glory, it's such a beautiful reminder with the lyrics of that song. Our rest is in heaven. Our rest is not here. Then why should we tremble when trials draw near? Be still and remember the worst that can come, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. Oh, how I pray. I pray that this will be how we see in the midst of the darkness. The worst that can come, the absolute worst that can come for we who are in Christ, but shortens our journey and hastens us home. Number six, I, I pray you will know the power of God. This is what we looked at last time I preached in verses 19 through 23. We're going to look at it further as we move into chapter 2. But Paul praying for the Ephesian church to know the power of God. And where does he point them as God's glorifying display of his power? The resurrection of Jesus. Why, why the resurrection? Because Paul wants his readers to know that the same power that brought Jesus back from the dead is the same power that brings every believer to new life in Christ. But how, oh, how easy it is for us to lose sight of this power, to take this power for, for granted. Just think about conversion for, for a moment, someone coming to faith in, in Christ. Again, it's, it's not some decision that we deserve a congratulations for. We're coming from spiritual death to life in Christ. We've done nothing to deserve this or earn this or make it happen. It is a miracle of God. But if I've heard it once, I've heard it a thousand times. People saying, I just want, I want more than the gospel. Like, I want to I go deeper than the gospel. As if that's even possible. And I assume that in those moments when somebody's saying they want to go deeper than the gospel, they're thinking that the gospel is simply what believers believe in order to get to heaven. 
They fail to understand that it's more than a ticket through the gate. It's actually the vehicle that gets us to our destination. And so if I press the conversation at at all, and it doesn't have to be much pressing, what's apparent is, is what they want is something more than the gospel. Not something deeper. They want something more. They're chasing after some mystical post-conversion experience, a a greater euphoria, an intimate emotional feeling. And even unbeknownst to them, they're chasing after it like like an addict for his next high. Got to have it. But what does the addict always need? Another high, a better drug. And the consequences, friends, can be deadly. A healthy marriage doesn't need an outside stimulant. It needs intimate knowledge and understanding of the one we, are, we love and are loved by. And the gospel is God's word to us that we are intimately loved. That he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons and daughters. He made it possible for us to hear. He made it possible for us to believe. And upon the believing, he sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit as our guarantee of our inheritance. To fail to stand in awe of the power of God to do all of this is a clear indication that one does not see or understand the power of God. In the pursuit of everything else outside of the gospel, the pursuit of all those things, more experience, more emotion, better feeling, it's only going to lead to a deformed understanding of the gospel. See, when experience is your high, it's also the source of your power. Devalue the miracle of conversion, we devalue the, pa- the, the, the power of God. Oh, church, I pray we will never lose sight of God's power. That if we desire to be a better parent, we will never take our eyes off of the gospel. We desire to be a better spouse, that we never take our eyes off the gospel. Never stop growing in our knowledge and understanding of the gospel. I pray we will see everything and everything and anything and everything else for what it is. The oh-so-tempting forbidden fruit of the garden. See, no matter how much times change, and as that song went, times they are changing. Times are changing. They're going to continue to change, but some things remain the same. Sin is the problem. Death is our enemy. And Jesus is the answer. We can never grow past this. Never can grow past the gospel. Simple enough for a child to understand and deep enough for the greatest theological minds to never fully comprehend. So I pray we will never stop seeing our salvation for what it is, a miracle that is brought by God's power. I pray we will not stop seeing our ability to remain in the faith for what it is, a miracle that is brought by God's power and that we will continually give him thanks and praise for his glorious grace. Number seven, I pray we will faithfully pray for one another. So many times I'm reminded that while there's so much I wish I could do for someone. Right now we have a a friend of our family from our previous church that sent us here. 
She's on life support with COVID. Family's going to have to make a decision this week what to do. The only thing that we can do is pray. The only thing that we can do is pray. But do you ever find yourself talking with someone and saying something like, I'm sorry, I can't do more, but I'll pray? I find myself saying that sometimes. What a low view of the power of prayer we put forth with such a statement. Church, there is nothing more powerful than we can do than pray. See, verses 3 through 14 make it clear that that God is 100% sovereign over every aspect of salvation. Everything in time, as we have looked at, working to fulfill God's plan in the fullness of time. What's Paul praying in verses 15 through 23? For God to fulfill his plan. He's praying for God to fulfill his plan. And you know what God's answer always is to that prayer? Yes. Yes. Everyone who is in Christ will one day be with Christ. Our spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And what is God's means for getting us there? The prayers of the saints. Paul is in prison, yes. But faithfully praying for the saints, nonetheless. You are here. You're at home, watching from home, participating from home. There's nothing stopping us from praying for one another. Nothing stopping us at all from praying for one another. And if you're here today needing someone to, to pray with you and for you, myself or one of the other elders will be happy to do so immediately following this service. If you're tuning in from home and would like us to pray for you, please reach out and we won't hesitate. We will pray with you and for you. But I also ask that you pray, take time to pray for one another. You don't need an elder to, to pray for you. We'll be happy to. You have a church, a church family of saints who can petition God on your behalf. We petition God on behalf of one another. The sister in Christ who is in Memphis, Tennessee on life support is a fellow saint that we can petition our great God on behalf of. And he hears our prayers. I encourage you to take the church directory that you've received in email. If you've not, we'll be happy to send you one. If you're on our active list, we we send them out. It's got a list of everybody who is a member and active attender of our church that we know of and who has agreed to have their information on there. And just use that as a means of praying through and praying for one another. Use it as a prayer guide. Pray, use it as a means of like, I need to write a, a note to this person and encourage this person in the faith. We all know we're going through a difficult time. Let's encourage one another through this season. Show agape, sacrificial love to one another in this season. Let's be a light in a dark world. Let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you for the gift of salvation. We thank you for the miracle that it is. Thank you that even in the midst of trial, we are able to delight in you. May we continue to do so in the days ahead. May we continue to persevere in the faith with delight. 
Trust in Christ alone as our only hope in life and in death. May we practice agape love towards one another, living joy-filled lives focused on Jesus, others, and then ourselves. May we see and, as a result, live biblically in the midst of the darkness. And may we do so to the praise of your glorious grace. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Derek, one note here. I know we're going to sing, yet not I, but Christ through me. And I know we've been talking about how to transition to that next song. What we're going to do, church, is we're going to sing, yet not I, but Christ through me. Because that's the truth, right? It's not me. It's all about Christ. And then we're going to go back to where we started. And we're going to sing the song that we opened in on of Christ our glory. I don't think we're going to sing the whole thing, but we're going to sing a part of it. And we're going to go out with an anthem of praise of just Christ our glory. Going back to realizing that this world, no matter the worst that could come, our hope is not here. Our hope is in heaven. So let's remember that as we sing. And as Jonathan reminded us at the beginning, we as Christians are compelled through Scripture to sing. So let's sing with masks on in response to the preaching of God's Word.